Sometimes it is right to be jealous. On the surface, that might sound strange, but if you think about it, I think you'll see that it's clear. Last weekend, we commemorated Veterans Day, that day on which we honor all those who have served in our nation's defense. When we say, thank you for your service, the honor belongs solely to them. It doesn't belong to someone who just buys a veteran's hat from a thrift shop who never served. That's stolen valor. And when it's discovered, it's right for any veteran to be disturbed and jealous for that honor which only belongs to veterans. And this right to jealousy extends to other spheres as well. It's right for husbands and wives to be disturbed if their spouse called someone else, my love. It's right for a father or mother to be disturbed by jealousy if their children, if their child calls another adult mom or dad who has no adoptive or biological right to that title. Likewise, by these same examples, it's also clear that it is wrong at times to be jealous. It is wrong to be jealous for honor which belongs to another, to steal a veteran's valor, to burglarize marital love, to rob a parent of their privileged status. In these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that they shouldn't seek what doesn't belong to them. And he makes this clear by pointing to people who are doing just that. Now, in Matthew 22, you will recall that uh, Jesus had a few rounds going back and forth between uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herodians. As we turn to chapter 23, he turns his attention to the disciples and just to the general crowd. And he begins teaching them. And the, and the teaching is specifically aimed at his disciples. Starting in verses 2 and 3, he says to them, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So Jesus is bringing up two leaders of which the disciples and the crowds are familiar with. Teachers of the law, otherwise known as scribes, and also the Pharisees. And he's telling them that they should be careful to do everything that they tell them to do, in part because they sit on the seat of Moses. Now, if you don't know, Moses was the one who originally received God's law for the people of Israel, received the Ten Commandments, articulated the rest of the law to the people of Israel. And this, so there's kind of a metaphorical sense in which the scribes and Pharisees seat, sit on the seat of Moses. Um, there's also um, literal instances of that where it seems like in synagogues in Israel, um, there used to be a seat in which the teacher um, would sit on and then explain the law 
to the people. It's a very, a very vivid metaphor. Um, and the reason why Jesus tells them, tells his disciples, tells the crowd that they ought to listen to these teachers is because um, they can have accurate instructions to offer. <clears throat> now, if we look to the Old Testament, we find uh, kind of one of the first instances of uh, one of these scribes, kind of the prototypical scribe in the book of Ezra. Um, there, in the book of Ezra, it, it, it describes him. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. And Jew, Ezra, this is... Um, the king Xerxes giving him instructions. He says, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the peoples of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. So we see that there can be a positive role um, for someone who's a teacher of the law. And as, we'll, as you might remember from as we've been going through uh, the book of Matthew. Um, Jesus is not interested in lowering the stakes when it comes to God's moral expectations of people. Um, sometimes, I think popularly, Jesus is cast as being like, oh, rules aren't cool, like just chill, man, kind of, kind of thing. Um, but that's not the picture that we get when we actually read the Gospels. Um, in Matthew 5, verse 20, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a pretty high bar that's set. Now, we understand that from the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament that Jesus sets the bar so high, because the bar is high, but also to point to the fact that the only way into the kingdom of God is through him, because he's the only one that has been perfectly righteous. And so the way that we get into heaven is by putting our faith and trust in him. And then he works out his righteousness within us. Not that we'll ever be perfect in this life, but that's not how we get into the kingdom of God. We get in by Christ's righteousness, not our own. But all that to say, God isn't lowering his righteous standards. They still remain high. And so this is why it's important for his disciples to listen to the scribes insofar as they're giving them an accurate account of the law. At the same time, though, Jesus um, is pointing out, he's directing the people to listen to uh, these teachers in order to um, point out some of their hypocrisy. Um, you'll see in verse, uh, in verse 3, So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, like, Oh yeah, you have to listen what they, these guys say, just don't do what they, they do. Um, 
So Jesus is continuing his critique of them from the previous chapter. Um, And and we've seen Jesus uh, criticize the Pharisees along these lines previously in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 15, verses 3 through through 6, um, we see him say, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In that context, he was condemning the Pharisees because they had created some kind of loophole where you could dedicate um, money to the temple rather than using that money for taking care of your parents and you would be okay. That wouldn't count against you for dishonoring your parents. We see Paul uh, level the same sort of criticism as well in Romans 2. Uh, in, we see in Romans 2.21, just kind of jumping down to that verse. Um, he says, well, you know, you've, you say that you follow the law, but you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, have, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now, the way in which the Pharisees and the scribes have been manifesting their hypocrisy has been by laying burdens on the people that they themselves aren't willing to lift. In verse 4, Jesus says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In sharp contrast, we've heard Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then by the time we get into the book of Acts, Paul says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? So what is this burden? What is this uh, yoke that Jesus talks about, that Paul talks about? What this burden is, is the laws upon laws that these religious teachers had created. So you have the law, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, they added all kinds of laws on top of that, like, okay, you can't take your cow out to get water and stuff like that. They made it very burdensome to the point that they kind of lost, they lost the narrative. They lost, they lost the point of everything. And this is why Jesus tells them, you know, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. So again, Jesus isn't denying the importance of God's moral commands and inviting people to come to him who are weary and burdened. He's not saying none of that matters anymore. But what he's saying is is that all those laws upon laws aren't going to lead you to being righteous. Because the Pharisees and the scribes, they've created all that and they don't live up to it. They haven't achieved what those laws supposedly will accomplish, which is making you a righteous person. 
just hasn't happened. There's a second part to their hypocrisy, which is this. Everything they do is done for people to see. They're show-offs, religious show-offs. They want people to think that they're very righteous and important. You see this earlier in Matthew, um, Matthew 6, verses 1 and 16, um, where Jesus is, again, instructing his disciples, telling him not to be like them. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Saying that uh, when they fast, they make themselves all look terrible. So people will ask, what's wrong? What are you doing? Well, I'm fasting unto God. You know, to make <laughs> so people are like, oh, wow, he's really holy. That's what they were really interested in. And I, I really appreciate what the Gospel of John has uh, records on this. Um, and Jesus is talking to them. John 5, verses 44 through 47. He says, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is the real crux of the matter. The Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders, they're more interested in glorifying themselves, getting glory from each other. Oh yeah, dude, you're doing great and all that, than seeking God's glory and giving all the glory to God. And one of the ways, a couple of the ways that they tried to draw attention to them to themselves was through the religious garb that they wore, um, through the wearing of, of phylacteries, um, which Jesus says they made wide, and tassels, which they made long. Um, now, for us, we're, we're like, what is a phylactery? What's the deal with these tassels? Um, well, they have an Old Testament foundation to them. Um, as far as phylacteries go, um, their foundation is drawn from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 8, um, the people are instructed. Um, this comes after God gives the Shema to, to the people of Israel, telling them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Um, and then in verse 8, it says, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and mind. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, the idea here was God wanted his people to remember the law. So it's like, you know, like the back of your hand kind of thing. Now, they took this literally so that they actually did put the law on their heads. They bound it um, in these little capsules called phylacteries um, that had little writings of the law. And we've got a picture of, of one. This is a more modern version of it, but you get the idea. They, they'd actually wear it around their head. And this wouldn't be so wrong necessarily if it was an effective reminder, but again, remember Jesus' critique here. They're not doing this to remember the law, really, so that they glorify God. They're doing this so that pe they, people will pay attention to them. Look at me! I've got the law on my forehead. Um, so they're doing this. The other, other way in which they're trying to draw attention to themselves is through the wearing of these, 
of these tassels. And this, this has its foundation in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 15, uh, verses 38 through 41. Uh, there it says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations that come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting because um, in Matthew's record of Jesus' ministry, it seems that Jesus may have also worn these tassels himself. So again, there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with this. And we get a hint of this in Matthew 9.20, where you had the woman who was afflicted with a bleeding disease come up and touch him. It says, just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now, it could have just been a a regular cloak, I guess. Um, But this is a picture of what those cloaks would have looked like. You can see the tassel. So you can see how it'd be something very easy to just kind of come up and just touch touch the edge of it. Now remember what was said in Numbers, that the point of these tassels was in order for the people to remember to honor God. And what's so perverse is that these religious leaders were wearing these garments in order to remind others to honor them. To honor them rather than honoring and just glorifying God. Now, um, Matthew also records here, so that's the whole get up there with the phylactery, the the tassels, everything. Um, Jesus also says that they're obsessed with being greeted with respect and having the most important seats of honor and this is recorded elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. In some, the scribes and Pharisees were more concerned with turning eyes towards them rather than turning eyes toward God. And it's behavior worth condemning for its own sake, but Jesus is highlighting it here in order to teach his disciples how they are to live in complete contrast from that. We go on to verses 8 through 12. The message that Jesus is trying to drive across to them is that they shouldn't be glory hounds like the Pharisees. And the practical example that he gives in these verses is that they shouldn't lust after titles. So he says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So notice the reasons that are given for why they aren't to be called rabbi. Because they have one teacher, and you are all brothers. So who's who's the one teacher? Can anyone take a guess? Jesus. And so, so even as Jesus is giving them instructions, he's also making strong claims about himself at the same time. That as far as teachers go... He's head and shoulders above all of them. He is the teacher. And then on the other hand, Jesus is saying, you're all brothers. 
you know, whatever leadership capacities you might serve in, at the end of the day, you're all brothers. None of you are lord over the other. And yet, as we go into the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, we see Paul talk about how people are teachers in the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So how do we reconcile these things? Jesus is saying, don't be called teachers. Paul is saying, Jesus gave the church teachers. Well, they're not in conflict with each other because Jesus isn't saying no one should be a teacher. The function is fine. We need teachers. The problem is exalting anyone to such a high stage where they're kind of the singular teacher. That's what we're not supposed to do. He says the same thing about calling others father. He says, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. So that's pretty explicit for why we shouldn't call just any earthly man father. Why? Because we have an earthly father. Now, does that mean you don't call your biological or adopted father father? No. That's not what Jesus is saying. We've just seen earlier how he critiqued the Pharisees for not properly honoring father and mother. What he's talking about is applying that as a religious title to exalt someone to, again, this high stage which only belongs to our Father in heaven. Now, the reason for this is given in the Old Testament. In Malachi 1.6, we see how God desires that this honor would belong to him alone. It says, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, this is God speaking, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? As you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So we shouldn't call anyone else on earth father. Okay. And yet, as we go into the New Testament, we do see this fatherly relationship between church leaders and those in the church emerge. We see in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul saying to the Corinthians, if, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, You do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, dear children, so implying a fatherly relationship by the Apostle John, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. We go to Galatians, and this is kind of interesting. Not father, but we see almost a, a motherly relationship implied uh, by Paul. Galatians 4.19, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Fathers don't experience (laughs) the pains of childbirth. 
So a very intimate relationship that Paul's suggesting here. Um, and, and this isn't just one that he shared generally with people, but it could have a specific, uh, it could be with a specific individual. Um, Philemon 1.10 says that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So again, how do we reconcile these things? Jesus says, don't call anyone father. We see in the New Testament where this fatherly relationship comes up again and again. Well, Jesus is not denying the good of those kinds of fatherly, motherly relationships. What he's warning against, what he's instructing his disciples to avoid is calcifying um, that kind of role or title by honoring someone by constantly referring to them as that. Because that honor of referring to someone as father is one which only belongs to God when we're talking about outside of the natural parent-child relationship. Now the same thing, and so the same thing applies too as we get down to Jesus saying you aren't to call anyone instructor. Now the word instructor in the Greek is kathagetes, which also means leader, um, which I think kind of helps explain why this is connected with Messiah. He says you're not going to call anyone instructor because you have one Messiah. Now, again, the reason for this isn't that we aren't supposed to have leaders in the church. That's basically implicit throughout the New Testament that the church has leaders. It's this idea that Jesus is the only one ultimate leader. We shouldn't look to any other human being as being that kind of Messiah. Within the church, certainly. Definitely not outside of the church as well. Now again, none of this is denying the function of teacher, father, instructor. What Jesus is warning against is using certain titles and insisting on honorifics that will distract people from honoring and glorifying God alone, stealing the honor that belongs to him. And so when you come into the, like, the sphere of clergy, Protestants have always been uncomfortable of calling their pastors father because of this, this reason, because of these verses here. Um, because as a formal title, it claims just a little bit too much. It's a little bit too authoritative. Um, and even as far as the title of pastor goes, it's not necessary that you call me that when you, <laughs> approach, when you approach me. Um, it, and hence, I don't insist on it because of what Jesus says here. But I think it can be helpful. I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong. Um, I, I think when someone calls me Pastor Tom, I think it's a good reminder to me of my responsibilities to you. And it's a good reminder to you of my purpose. Um, I'm not just here as Tom. I'm, I'm here as, as pastor. And the word pastor means shepherd and, uh, and is drawn from the teachings of, of the New Testament. Um, this is what Peter has to say in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 6. He says, he's talking to pastors here, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, 
but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, so Peter's talking about Jesus here, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So as, as a pastor, it is not my concern to try to lift myself up, to glorify myself, to make myself famous. As a pastor, it's, it's my concern to glorify the name of Christ and to serve in the role of, of, as a shepherd to all of you. I'm here to serve, feed, protect, guide. I do have authority insofar as I stick with the word of God. And as far as that goes, then yeah, you, sh- you should listen to me. But I'm not your master. And I know you know this. But I'm not your master. I should have fatherly desires for you. And I could be accounted fatherly, um, as we saw in the case of Paul. But I... It's not necessary that I be a father figure to you. It's enough that I'm just your brother in Christ. And I'm acting as an under-shepherd, or as one author I've heard put it, as a sheepdog, which is probably proper, properly fitting and humble. You know, Jesus says, go. Oof, okay, you go. we got to round up the sheep, help guide, help protect. Um, that's my job here. And we see Paul recognize that he himself occupies the same sort of humble position. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 through 5, he tells the Corinthians this. And you have to understand the context here. You have Paul as a teacher. There's this guy, Apollos. And there's other teachers. And they all kind of collect followings because... um, Maybe one person likes the teaching, the teaching style of Apollos, another likes the teaching style of Paul. And it's developing a little bit of like rivalry and tension in the community. And this is what Paul says to them. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one, one says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So as far as titles go, you know, pastor, elder, deacon, deaconesses, titles can be all right. But when they suggest something more than servant roles, when it suggests that you occupy like some kind of divine status, when we start clinging to them and really insisting on them, then we know that there's a problem. Because God has told us, and Christ, the Son of God, has told us that greatness 
is found in humility and humble service. In the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, we are told pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. And we've seen uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus again and again telling his disciples to occupy the position of a child. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. We see Jesus even set forth this model himself when he washes the feet of his disciples. In James 4, 6-10, through 10, and James um, is traditionally identified as being the brother of Jesus, he says this, But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This general call that Jesus is giving to his disciples to be humble servants is a helpful reminder that what Jesus is talking about here isn't limited to people serving in formal positions of spiritual authority in the church. Again, the wrong lesson here if you think this is just a word for pastors and the like. This is a message for all disciples. Don't steal God's glory by trying to puff yourselves up in front of others. Obey God because you want to glorify Him, not because you want to show yourself off. Don't look down your nose at others to feel better about yourself. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Jesus' command not to elevate people too highly has good theological reason behind it. We shouldn't exalt any mere human beings as though they are God, as though they are the Messiah, because we already have one Father. We already have one Messiah. There are real dangers that emerge when we start idolizing people. When church leaders are made into celebrities, occasions of abuse often arise. It's not unusual to see the sheepdog degenerate into a wolf. And so for the sake of our leaders and for ourselves, we must not venerate mere human beings. We can respect their calling while still recognizing that they're just a brother or sister like us. Cults arise when we forget this and make leaders into demigods. The good news for the Christian, and something that we can be thankful for this Thanksgiving, is that we don't need to be obsessed with promoting ourselves, with exalting ourselves. We don't need to worry about earthly status because it is God who will determine our status in the end. We are free to be humble, to be self-forgetful because God never forgets us. At day's end, it will be Him that lifts us up.
And that's all that will matter. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give You thanks for the teaching that Your Son has given us this morning. That in instructing His disciples to seek Your glory, we are reminded of how we also today as 21st century disciples should do the same thing. Thank you for this, Father, because it really gives us freedom. It frees us from being obsessed with glorifying ourselves, making everything all about us. It frees us, Father, from the dangers of elevating human beings to the status of God and all the dangers and terrible things that surround that, Father. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful invitation to humility, to being just servants, and that we can rest in the assurance that you've got us in in your hands, and that if the world doesn't think much of us, Father, we know that what only matters is how we measure in your eyes. And Father, we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness, we are all seen as your sons and daughters. We give you praise in the name of Christ our Lord. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.